Hi, I'm Erica in Edmonton. Chip in Durham. And Shannon in Durham. And welcome to episode two of the audio guide to Babylon 5, Midnight on the Firing Line. I will confess that I look forward to the day when we have cleansed the universe of the Centauri and carved their bones into little flutes for Narn children. It is a dream I have. Be careful, Ambassador. Not every dream I've heard lately ends well for you. Right, well, welcome back, and we are so glad that you are still joining us on this adventure, or if you happen to be just popping in for the first time, welcome. Uh, before we get into the excitement of talking about Midnight on the Firing Line, uh, I just want to point out something that you may or may not have noticed already on our lovely website. We have instituted a couple of different comment, comment threads. We now have a spoiler-free and a spoilery comment thread for our episodes. Uh, that way, you can come and chat about the, the stories that we're talking about without having to worry about being spoiled if this is your first time through. And if it's not your first time through and you want to go into great detail about item redacted, then go right ahead, head for the spoilery comment section and go crazy. That'd be great. And it'd be an opportunity for you to give us some uh, input onto the episodes before we record our podcast. So if we if, if the timing aligns, let us know what you think, what you'd like us to address uh, when we talk about the episodes. It, it's just a way to make this a little more book clubby, if that's all right. Yeah, and I'm really good at taking notes and keeping track. So if, you know, episode two of season four is your favorite and you want to make sure we cover something specific about it, you can let us know now. That's fine. I'll make a note. Awesome. Great. Spreadsheets are our friends. (laughs) Yes. Some of my best friends are spreadsheets, as I have been known to say. (laughs) But now let's switch gears a little bit and get, get on to talking about episode one of Babylon 5, Midnight on the Firing Line. Uh, this is an episode that I am particularly fond of. I like beginnings. I've always liked beginnings very much. Um, and yes, we did just talk about The Gathering, which is technically the beginning. It's the but prologue. Yeah, yeah I, think, <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. Because if you look at it, and you look at what we just watched, there are a lot of differences. As, as you may know, I've been watching this with, with my spouse, Stephen, who is a complete noob here when it comes to Babylon 5. And when it finished, his, his exact quote was, that was much different from the pilot. And I think that that <laughs> sums it up very well. It really was. So I think I want to start off talking about some of the differences from the pilot because they are legion. So Chip, why don't you start us off? What What are some of the differences you noticed and how did you feel about them? Well, the first notice that leaps out is that the cast is different. Laurel Takashima has gone off beyond the rim somewhere. <laughs> she's uh, she's gone. Uh, basically, this episode happened uh, was made and released a year after the pilot was made. And Tamlin Tamita it was especially at that time was an up and coming actress, uh, so she may not have felt the need to do a science fiction TV show on a low budget when she was trying to get into films and things like that. But uh, so. Lieutenant Commander Takashima is gone. Lieutenant Commander Susan Ivanova is with us. And as you can tell from this first episode, she is a she is a tough, no-nonsense, ramrod straight, humorless uh, sort of uh, sort of second in command, isn't she? She certainly comes off that way. And I have to just interject a little bit of personal opinion here. I like the difference even and I'm not even thinking about anything farther down the road just from from the gathering to this. I I really was not a fan of Takashima. I felt like her performance was just not quite there. And 
I think Ivanova seems she she definitely seems a little bit a little bit stiff, but I, I like it. And at this point, I really think it works for her character. I totally agree 100% with that. Just watching the two back to back again for the first time in a long time, it struck me and I don't know if it was the actress, I don't know if it was the director or something about when JMS was writing and um, giving input. But Tamita's performance is really, really wooden. Even in the character moments where she's supposed to be looser, sharing her coffee with the doctor, things like that, she's still so flat. And with Ivanova, she is just as by the book. Um, She is just as commanding. And yet she seems more human right right from the start. I think that I think your description of flat and wooden are, are excellent, and I think that Takashima it was kind of like a, a wall, whereas Ivanova is a little bit more like a, a closed door. She has some mm-hmm. of the same qualities, but you know that there's something behind it if we can just get it open and see. Absolutely, and you see that at the end. You know, I was being facetious when I talked about how Ramrod straight and all that stuff as she, as she is. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, it, I'm not I'm not spoiling anything, dear listener, to say that. Uh, as we've said many times on this podcast already, characters develop and change. And you'll see that in Ivanova, as with all the other characters. But the she looks completely different in her last scene with our new telepath, Talia Winters. She's, her, she's let her head, hair down. She looks glamorous. Uh, she looks softer. And she has an honest, emotional, you know, wounded conversation with Winters, uh, where we get a lot of Psychor backstory that is really important to the show, but uh, you know uh, she is. It, it's a much well more well rounded character than Takashima. We can talk a little bit in the spoiler section about where Takashima would have been going if that character had stayed with the series. But uh, actually, we did that last week. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, Claudia Christian gets the opportunity to demonstrate a lot more range this time. And I think it's as much to do with the actress as it is to do with the script. Absolutely. And you also mentioned Talia Winters, who is one of our other differences between these these two episodes. Uh, we've got a, a whole new telepath. What do you guys think? She's a much more commanding presence than uh, Lita Alexander at the start, if you compare The Gathering to midnight on the firing line even though they're they're both telepaths they're both there to fulfill the same role but i get the sense that winters is much more much more comfortable in her own skin and being a telepath you know we didn't see a real lack of confidence with alexander but winters just carries herself so much more like you know i know what i am i know what i'm doing and i'm here to do it you know, I completely agree. And I wonder if that was a stylistic choice on purpose, or if that just comes from sort of the general difference in the, the scripting and, and the direction between the gathering. It seemed like maybe everybody in the gathering was a little less comfortable in their own skin, as compared to the way that they sort of interact in, in Midnight on the Firing Line. It seemed like everything was just a little bit more smooth. And I, I do want to get to talking about uh, Sinclair and some of the other characters in, more in depth later. But I do think that that is one major difference is the the characterization of Sinclair was was he didn't seem like such a tough guy uh, in this one. But but we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. Um, another character slash costume difference I want to touch on is Delenn. Delenn yes. looks completely different here. <laughs> 
Yes, and, we, we and, get to and, see the actress. <laughs> yeah, we get to see the actress, and the performance is very different. Um, she's not hiding under as much makeup, and she's uh, she's allowed to be more herself. I imagine that there were a lot of conversations between Mira Furlan and uh, JMS in that time that uh, they were gearing up to go back to series. Mira Furlan uh, came to the U.S. from Croatia, and she she was a big name actress over there, and the country, you know, fell apart. And when you get to the scene um, in the council chambers where she talks about the cycle of retribution between the Narn and the Centauri, they take your land, you take their land. She's showing a lot more pain and a lot more passion than she ever had reason to give in The Gathering. In The Gathering, she's cryptic. The only real action she, that she has or the passion that she demonstrates is uh, involved with uh, waving a gravity ring at uh, Jakar. <laughs> oh, dear. She gives such a good performance in this one. Um, all of the and, all of the performances go up, and that last scene, the contrast, yes, that last contrast. scene in front of uh, in front of the Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah, it's wonderful to see that 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 mm-hmm. contrast between you know the, the the diplomat and yet you know letting you know the emotions out and leading in the council chamber, and then this just total innocent in the face of this completely foreign concept of humor and then you know <laughs> they see the rocket go down into the earth and then she starts to get it and oh my gosh that, that she that starts scene. to get it but then she's befuddled again and and and, <laughs> and and the popcorn's just ruining her we need <laughs> we need a tumbler for uh aliens and popcorn we get we get mira Furlan from this episode we get uh we get commander strax from the uh intro videos for the time for the um time of the doctor day of the doctor, day, day of the doctor. you know uh, aliens and popcorn that's a thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i couldn't agree more i think her performance in this this story is is just it's very different and it's great and and yes i remember reading a, a quote somewhere that she was uh, mira Ferlin was basically the meryl streep of of croatia so i don't think that we can overstate how big of a star she was there and i think that babylon 5 it was just a, a huge coup to get somebody of this caliber to be on the show and i think it's wonderful that she has less makeup at this point so she's able to shine a little bit and we we get to see a little more because i think her performance especially in that last scene with the popcorn is i mean she doesn't say almost any words at all it's very subtle but so effective and i, I just think it's fantastic they they scored a lot of great actors uh if you think about it i mean when we look at two other linchpins of the show jakar and londo peter jurassic and andreas katsoulis just absolutely rock through that makeup and that hair to create these incredibly passionate uh nuanced characters that we're going to see develop Absolutely. And I definitely want to get to that in a little while. But before we do that, um, do you guys have any other differences that you want to talk about? Actually, I did notice that I felt like the pacing was very different. Uh, Midnight in the fire, on the firing line, it really cooks. Like I feel like you are dropped in, the action starts immediately with some, some battle, and I felt like the gathering was a little bit, in part because it was longer, had more time to play out, and it was, it was sort of a more standard mystery story. I think this one uh, had, had much... It was pacier, as they say. Any thoughts on that? One word. No. Star Furies. <laughs> Star Furies! Star Furies! X-Wing fighters in space on a TV show made with CGI! Um, okay, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so in terms of space battles in The Gathering, we didn't really have one. We had the Vorlon fleet coming in being menacing. At that time, the largest number of CGI vessels on screen at once, aside from like, um, well, it was the most CGI vessels on screen at once. And it rivaled uh, some of the scenes in Return of the Jedi in terms of the number of motion things going on on the screen. But that was still kind of sedate compared to what we get in Midnight on the Firing Line with an honest-to-goodness series of uh, space battles with small fighters. And they obey more or less the laws of physics. It's so great. I love that they they move the way ships in space genuinely would move probably we think mm-hmm. yeah uh, exactly we even had a person comment on our uh, website already uh, Vord 99 made the exact same uh, observation that we get genuine um, motion as you said the this physics works they actually thought about it and did it you have the star furies that can decelerate spin and go the other way without um without having to fight any air currents um, and th- just the dynamics of it that we get battles, we get traffic scenes that, you know, the first of the constant coming and going of traffic around the space station, this just contrasted it immediately with the other shows of the time with, um, with Star Trek's model work. I mean, you'd get, you know, two ships sort of hanging there and staring at each other to see who blinks first. Um, it, it's, it was very static and Babylon five was able to take the technology of the time and create something just so much more exciting right away. Yeah. When I was watching The Gathering, uh, we talked last week about the, uh, or last time, about the suspension of disbelief you have to do with the old CGI. It's just one year later, and this is significantly improved. Significantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, also, in terms of differences between the pilot and the first episode, you know, you talked about the pacing, Erica, and yeah, it's, I wonder if, you know, we never really considered starting with any episode other than The Gathering, but if this was your first episode of Babylon 5. I think that this would have given you just about everything you needed. And it just moves, moves so much better than The Gathering. Agreed. Um, there, you've got mm-hmm. peaks and valleys. Uh, you know, you got your slow moments. You've got your slow character moments and you've got your action set pieces. There's a little bit of everything in those 45 minutes. And it really makes the most of them compared to the hour and a half of uh, the the TV movie. Do you two mm-hmm. think that Midnight on the Firing Line is a great is a good way to start with Babylon Five? I think it can be. Uh, you most of the vital information that you would need to ke- to continue continue on watching the show and understanding who goes where. Um, it's all pretty much there. There are things in the gathering that will be important later, but to start watching the show from midnight. And I think they were having to take that into account when they realized how much of a gap they were going to have between pilot and beginning of series. And I think JMS found a really great way to balance the people who sort of knew what was going on and the people who didn't have a clue. Yeah, I think, I mean, knowing that I started Babylon 5 in season three, I think. So I, I can't I can't really say that any particular point is a bad point to start. I do, my, my sort of left brain, nerd brain 
has trouble saying, like, I, I don't think I could bring myself to tell somebody to start with Midnight on the Firing Line simply because of OCD tendencies. Like, I just, <laughs> I, I have to start at the beginning. However, I do think if if you're thinking of introducing to someone to Babylon 5 and they're very skeptical about it and you have a fear that the gathering would perhaps put them off, I, I do have to agree that, that this episode is one that would probably have a much bigger chance of, of drawing somebody in because it is a little bit more like the way television is produced these days. It's, it's much faster and and it does draw you in. And, and it does actually, one of the similarities I think it, it has to The Gathering is that you still get a few moments which are a little bit exposition dumpy like it's not terrible it's not like long but there are longer speeches from like garibaldi or whomever talking to to londo about the uh the centauri race and and how they were supposed to be in charge of the galaxy but that was 100 (laughs) years ago and i mean it's it's a little bit overt um but it's providing important information and i think that you do get everything that you kind of need in this story um as opposed to the gathering where you get everything you need and more and then some space and then some not so great acting. So yeah, I would, I would say that this is an okay one for sure. If, if somebody's not necessarily going to be hundred percent committed right off the bat. So putting yourselves in, in the shoes of sort of the new viewers that we have here, you guys, what, what are your sort of initial impressions of, of the plot and the show so far after having seen the pilot in this first episode without, of course, uh, saying whether or not these initial impressions would hold true later on? Uh, what, do, what do you think about where it's going story-wise? Would you even have an idea? I think if I was watching this for the first time, these two things, I would consider this to be a standard science fiction series not that there's not that i'm damning it with with that description you know it's a series about aliens about space battles about politics and things like that if i'm watching this for the first time i'm expecting humor and action things like that i'm expecting a standard quality science fiction drama we have talked in the zero episode uh, so we haven't spoiled anything i don't think by saying that this is a story with a beginning middle and end there is an arc here but if we didn't know about that coming into this thing i don't know that we'd get that impression from the gathering and midnight on the firing line a lot of seeds are planted there's a lot of connections made um we get a lot of different characters interacting to get things set up i think i would be curious to to know more to see where where these things are going, um, where these character interac- interactions are going to go. And also, I would get a strong sense of things that I'm interested in, things that feel kind of real to me. I like the fact that they, the, one of the things in the background is the election and the fact that there's there have news coming in from, from Earth about, you know, the polls and the standings and the voting. Um, things that, you know, make Earth an integral part of the scene in a way that I'm, I'm thinking of Star Trek again, but uh, Star Trek was almost constantly about those new worlds. And you almost never, you know, you almost never visited earth. You almost never heard from earth other than the occasional Admiral talking head, you know, issuing orders that just didn't feel very connected. I mean, you know, it could be interesting drama. Yeah. But um, with Babylon five, it really feels like a plausible future. Because of those references, because they keep Earth as a part of this, even as they establish these other races and their pasts and how they connect to one another. There's that great scene. I, 
I think it's, it's overlooked, but that great scene with Sinclair and the senator where they're arguing politics over how Babylon 5 is going to respond to the Narn takeover of Ragesh 3. And the senator's complaining, you know, I'd like to be able to see you when I'm, talk- when I'm talking <laughs> to you. Uh, and uh, Sinclair's having his argument and motioning to Ivanova to stay out of sight so that she doesn't get involved in the conversation, which pays off dividends immediately thereafter. You know, that sort of Babylon 5 is a place that exists in a context of a whole bunch of different worlds, including Earth. And um, that sort of spinning tons of metal melting pot kind of thing comes across when um, lead characters, the diplomats, are having to deal with home. Yeah, and that the melting pot thing was sort of exactly what I was going to say, that you you do have these myriad races that are all sort of different. And I like the fact that, you know, we had some characters that were a little bit more in the foreground and the gathering, and then it's, you know, the, the focus is shifted slightly. Like, we really don't get much Delenn. We, you know, we've talked about how much we like her, but she really isn't as, as major a, a player here as she was in the other one. And I, I kind of like that sort of large ensemble cast thing where not every single episode is going to be about the same four or five people. We are, you know, we're getting to see different people's stories and different people's perspectives play out, um, even just from the, the pilot the first episode and i think that's cool what are what are some of the things that you guys either like or or don't like about this first episode i can't really think of much that i don't like about it um it it, as we said it it moves it no it moves quickly it's snappy you've got the bigger political conflict between the narn and the centauri picking up you've got um the uh political issues back home on earth that you know help draw and make 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 us feel a connection um you've got the you know extra issue of the raiders you know and that's you know something to um sort of show that babylon 5 also has to deal with military issues as well as diplomacy it's there as a guarding station as much as it is to be the united nations of that century um there's very little that i don't like and you know it it almost boils down to you know a few nitpicks of you know dialogue choices or you know whether it's the actor or jms's writing there's just a few lines here and there that feel stilted a couple of times the ivanova has a couple of lines that just don't sound natural to me you know and but it's it's tiny things um overall i think it's a very strong introduction yeah little bits little bits like that like uh ivanova explaining why she doesn't want to vote for Luis Santiago because he, exactly you know that that doesn't really like that <laughs> well I do and I don't there's something about the delivery and I'm and yeah. I'm sort of spoiled for that because uh I, I know I, I know how the character is going to develop but uh it's a very dis, it's sort of a stilted line oh uh, and I don't know if it's her reading of it or the thing but I have to agree with Shannon my critical faculties pretty much fail me when it comes to Midnight on the Firing Line. There is so much geek candy for me, uh, 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 from the Star Furies to the uh, tension between Londo and Jakar. I can't. I can't do I can't do it. I will <laughs> well, do better, okay. dear listener, in future I actually, episodes, but I'm stuck Something here. occurs. Yeah, something occurs, actually, when, we were, when you were saying that. Um, you know, bless his heart, I know that Part of it was the the makeup and the um, and the teeth, but and some of it seems to have been directing, according to some things that JMS has said. But our introduction to Veer is is a little over the top, you know. And um, 
you know, he, he, he is so very frantic. He is so very lispy, um, trying to trying to fight those teeth that he's got to talk through, things like that. That feels like a bit of a weak point, but, you know, that that may be because I know what's coming later on as we talk about the characters developing. But, um, but yeah, uh, he, he he just makes me want to sit him down and give him a cup of tea and tell him to take a breath. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he does. He does walk around with this big neon sign that says comedy relief. Yes, absolutely. And actually, it's funny because I have I sort of have Veer in both columns for myself as far as what I like and don't like. Uh, I like I like the idea of Londo having this, you know, his his quote unquote staff, somebody to sort of <laughs> kick around and interact with, because I think Londo works best when he's when he's playing off of someone. So I really enjoyed the introduction of, of that character to to have somebody for for Londo to throw things around or, or whatever it happens to be. Um, but I do agree that it was it was a little bit of an over the top thing. And <laughs> the teeth, you mentioned the teeth, Shannon, and that is that is definitely something that bothered me. Uh, I just I feel like they're well, even Londo, they're, they're both very much talking around their their teeth so much mm-hmm. that I found it a little bit distracting. I mean, in general, I'm okay with it because they're aliens and they have different teeth and they talk differently. But I think that that's something that gets a little bit minimized down the road. So if you yeah. are as distracted by it as I am, maybe don't worry quite so much. I, 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 finally, I finally thought of something that I can be critical about. <laughs> Do tell. That is the worst disguise job of a hidden handgun ever. You've got all these little bitty pieces, and then you've got this big gun shape that he pulls yep. out from under that, that. That would fool nobody. I'm sorry. Michael Garibaldi doesn't have that bad a reputation. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Prop Fair fail. Enough. Yes. I will I will give you that. I love the idea and I love the smaller pieces, but you are right as soon as he pulls out the one piece that just it's a it's a handle, guys. Like that's <laughs> it's clearly what it is. Yeah. All right, before we, knows. Uh, before we turn over to the the spoilery section of our program, let's do a quick lightning round talking about the characters and and what we sort of think of them at this point in the show. Um so Shannon, let's start with you. I want to hear your thoughts on Sinclair a little bit more. Yeah, I I think this episode really manages to show us um, in in quick bursts all the different facets of this character. We saw a little of it in the gathering here and there. Um, he was able to show, like, in the negotiating the hostage, and he's calm and quiet, And but once the hostage is gone, he turns around and it's like, you know, you ever come back here again and you're dead. You know, he shows the steely military leadership. Those contrasts show up again here. Uh, there's his philosophical side when he talks about the uh, Minbari, and, you know, Ivanova is kind of like, you know, really? I, you, you fought them and you, you're praising them? She She doesn't get it. But, you know, he's had the time to think about it and um, put it all into perspective. There's how he handles Jakar before and after um, the discovery that the Narns were supplying the raiders. Um, you know, beforehand, he is he is being diplomatic, but letting Jakar know that he's only being diplomatic because he has to, that he he's mad, he's furious at him for his part in the attack on Ragesh III, and then afterwards you know he's got the data crystals he throws them down on the table and you know lays it on the line that they've been caught red-handed and then there's the 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 slippery eel almost the way he maneuvers so that they don't have to um cast the vote they don't agree with in the council that he manages to 
put Ivanova in his place with the cautious instructions of you couldn't find me to know what the senator wanted you want, wanted me to do, um, as well as, you know, jumping at the chance to get back into the pilot seat, because, you know, at at, at the very heart, we, we will see this later, it's mentioned, he always feels like he's just a pilot, he's just an airman, and not, he doesn't always feel like he's can hold that station on his shoulders. So we see all of these facets brought in in small bursts that are going to develop later. Yeah, in in one episode. Um, It's a great performance, I think, but it's an even better writing job. I love the Sinclair character Um, so much. Well, can't say that. Uh, I love the Sinclair. (laughs) I love the Sinclair character. Uh, There is something about the way he carries himself. Serious sort of a philosopher king almost in some ways, but also he's got a real temper um, and, and the tough guy. I agree with everything you said, Shannon. He is a really strong character in this episode. Um, and, and that's sort of what you'd expect for episode one of the series. You know, it's it's time to show the hero being the hero and why he's the lead character of the show. Uh, and he, he comes off really well in this episode. I am honestly, I'm not the biggest Sinclair fan in the world, uh, but I do feel like he's written very strong here. I think it's much stronger than in The Gathering, at least the, so the, the TNT redone version of The Gathering really starts off with him kind of being a tough guy. And I I think the, uh, the other version has a slightly different scene. So he's slightly different characterized at the beginning, but I just, I feel like he's, he comes off as, as colder in the gathering and here he is, he's tough and firm, but in a more, I don't know, like you're rooting for him. I think a little bit more, or at least I was uh, overall. I, I think, I still think that he's a little bit wooden kind of just stiff, not, not terribly. I still enjoy watching his, his character on screen, but not not as much as I do some of the other ones. And I think while it's better here, it's still not not something that I love. However, I love the writing. I really, really like uh, I like the character as like if somebody were to describe it to me and say he does this and then he does that and the slippery eel thing that Shannon mentioned. I I really love that's that's the heart of this story for me is is when you see the the commander. Mm-hmm. basically hoodwinking the the earth folks by having Ivanova act for him. And I love that. Yeah. He's, um, he's very I, believably, I, I do like Michael O'Hare's performance in this one. Um, he strikes me as very believably military. And I'm going to contrast him to uh, Captain Kirk or Captain Picard or something like that. Uh, the military people that I have met have always been a little more understated, a little more, I mean, I guess wooden in real life. You know, they they mm-hmm. ha- they have their passions, they have their tempers, and things like that. But they're very controlled. And Michael O'Hare's uh, Commander Sinclair is very controlled as well. Um, I, I, I I when I was a Star Trek uh, fan watching the classic series, you know, I loved Kirk, but I never really saw him as military. I saw him as science fiction hero. I see Sinclair as military. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, the Federation isn't supposed to be super militaristic, whereas I feel like Earth Force is, is at least at this point, uh, made out to be a little bit very, more like that. It, yeah, very much so. Um, um, so how about Londo and Jakar? Where, ooh. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. I feel uh, like those are the other two characters that sort of were uh, a little bit more at the forefront in this story. So let's touch on them. 
Yeah, this story is very much the Sinclair, Londo, and Chikar um, in the forefront. And the performances here are very different as well. Um, let me t- I'll tackle Jakar um, and uh, seed Londo to uh, the, the others. But um, Jakar was a comedy villain almost in The Gathering. And he is more subtle and more dangerous uh, this time around. And he also has a sense of justice about him um, that you can tell that although he's he grind the bone grind the bones into flutes for our children to play with or stuff like that you know he he hates the centauri he is in that respect he is a bad guy uh but the centauri did awful things to his world and he feels absolutely justified in what he's doing he does not perceive himself as a bad guy he is a patriot i don't and, think i don't think ahead. i was just saying i don't think we as the viewers I don't I don't get the feeling we're sort of we're not quite allowed to see that yet. Yes, there's talk of, you know, that the Narn strip I mean the Centauri stripped our world, it used to be green. There's all that, but it's because it's delivered through exposition, it's gonna take us a while to actually absorb that. I think the Centauri, or at least Londo, comes off as more sympathetic in this first episode I, compared to Jakar. I disagree. I mean the blood calls for blood thing. Uh you know, the fact that uh he's that uh, Garibaldi is able to intercept Londo and and just talk sense into him just because he can't help his people uh, if if he if he does this you know you sympathize more with Londo uh, because uh, the Narn are clearly in the wrong in this episode uh, in terms of the action that they take but yeah yeah I I, I see uh, I see a little more balance between Jakar and Londo in terms of maybe not so much who you sympathize with as who you regard as dangerous. Um, and, but, but going back to Jakar, I, Andreas Katsoulis gives a better performance. He's helped with better makeup, but it's also a, um, this is a guy who's dangerous. And, um, and the more dangerous villains are the ones, are, are not the ones who are theatrical in their villainy, but who know when to be dangerously quiet. And this is a dangerously quiet performance. All right, Shannon, what about Londo? Well, I I still think we get the chance to see Londo as more sympathetic. There's the rather comedic introduction where he and Garibaldi are talking and we get the backstory of how when Earth and Centauri Prime, ha- when, when they met that, um, you know, there was the line that the Centauri were supposedly the power in the universe. And it's, oh, yes, you were one of our lost colonies until they find the DNA and realize that the Centauri were lying through their teeth. And Londo, you know, puts it down to, you know, clerical error or, you know, things like that. Um, you know, he's presented to be not as dangerous. You know, he, 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 I think the viewers are sort of meant to think that he's, you know, even... You know, even the point where he's going to, where he's planning to go um, kill Jakar when he puts his gun together and, you know, I'm going to go, you know, for my nephew, um, you know, blood calls to blood, you know, and it is very personal. But still, you know, Garibaldi is able to talk him down. I mean, you know, it it, it makes the fact that he backs off. It's not presented in a way to me to know whether that's him being smart or him being a bit cowardly. And uh, he's still sort of portrayed as more of the buffoon. So I think that's what one of the reasons that as viewers we we look at him um, and we sympathize, you know, a little bit more on the Centauri side at this point in the story. 
Mm-hmm. But he's, yeah, but I, it's it's a very good performance. It's very strong. Um, he, you know, Jurassic Peter Jurassic just takes some of those lines and just you know throws them out like he's playing a trumpet, and you know it works. <laughs> yeah, I think I have to agree with Shannon here. I I do feel like the Centauri are the more the more sympathetic characters here but i love one of the things i love so much about babylon 5 is that it is a world of of grays it's not blacks Mm -hmm. and and whites and and nothing in between so i i really appreciate the fact that you have uh, you know the the centauri are are clearly the ones who are 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 getting screwed here and but still at the same time you do have jakar talking about his planet and how how the Centauri came and, and wiped everything out and, and he really, he wants revenge. So I still think that Jakar is clearly the bad guy, but the, the reason that he has sort of, I hate to say human motivations, but it seems to be a word that fits at this point, uh, motivations that we can understand, make it much more of an interesting, uh, deep story. Uh, so it's, it's, you can't completely hate on the, hate on the Narns, but I, I still think that, that Londo comes off as the uh, the wounded party here, and and I, I really feel for him, and I like that. Yeah, uh, but in all three cases, stronger performances, stronger writing. Um, these are characters that you can believe in that can carry a series. Absolutely, I completely agree. All right, is there anything else you guys would like to to get in before we uh, jump over into spoiler territory? Uh, just to uh, say to our listeners who are new to Babylon 5 that this is what you've come for. This is this gives you more of an idea than the gathering of uh, what Babylon 5 is capable as a series. If you liked this better than the gathering, uh, you're on the right track. Not every season season one episode is up to this standard, but this tells you, what kind of series you're getting stick with us you're going to love it and i have to say even if if you liked this better than you liked the gathering but you still aren't completely certain i i would still say stick with us because i think that there are some episodes in season one that are actually stronger than this so it it, it continues to evolve and change so don't give up yet All right. So thank you so much for joining us, new folk. Uh, I'd like to remind you to come and visit us at b5audioguide.com. And remember, we do have a a couple of different comment streams for you now. So feel free to walk in spoiler-free territory and tell us what you think, um, both about the show and about the podcast. Let us know. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at b5audioguide. And I believe we even have a Tumblr. We do. b5audioguide on Tumblr. Yep. So come and check us out on the interwebs. We would really appreciate it. And of course, you need to have your homework assignment for next time. In a couple of weeks, we will be back and we will be talking about episode two, Soul Hunter. So get that watched and we will talk to you then. Until then, it is time for us to jump into spoiler territory. Okay, so now that we've ditched the newbies, what nuggets of... uh... We haven't haven't ditched all of them. I have heard from at least one of them that uh, they can't uh, wait and... Spoilers be damned, they want to hear the whole podcast. So you're a fool, you're doing it wrong, but welcome anyway. (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're taking your fate in your own hands and, well... 
You're going to miss out on some of the holy crap wow moments, but we are still happy to have you along for the ride. Um, but so anyway, you guys, what sort of nuggets of continuity or bits of characterization stood out to you within the sort of whole run of the show? Shannon, what, what seeds do you see being sown here? Oh, good Lord, where to start? I know. <laughs> I mean, what we're we're going to see, and it's not just seeds being planted for for things to come. Um, it's just also the parallels. JMS has this incredible way of creating these parallel situations. And here's the first half, and then it can be you know months or years down the line. Here's the second half. I mean, we the scene where Londo puts his gun together and he is going to go and kill Jakar, and Garibaldi is warned in time to stop him and talk him down. We're going to see the mirror of that play out uh, well down the line um, after the Centauri bomb Narn and Jakar turns around and he's going to go after Londo and Sheridan talks him down. You know, the, these parallel scenes that JMS sets up, you know, so far in advance or, or either that or he sees the, the power in that episode and creates the following. It, it, it amazes me sometimes the, 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 the way he was able to construct it so well. Mm-hmm. Chip, what about you? Anything that stands out for you? Oh, Lord. Um, the thing that I love so much about this episode in light of what's to come is that the character motivations are mm-hmm. just so so spot on. We see exactly why Londo is going to do what he's going to do. We were talking but we were arguing before the break about uh which characters come across as more sympathetic or more more well-rounded uh between the between Jakar and Londo and you know the Narn and Centauri conflict. Um, that little scene in the Zen Garden uh, when Jakar talks about the deforestation. You can't have the power of that uh, that follow up that that follow up scene in season two when um, Jakar is screaming that they're doing it to us again. You know mm-hmm. you can't have that without these seeds being planted in um, in in this first episode. But I mean. There's so much going on here. The pending Psycor conflict. Yeah, everything's I, laid I, out. I don't, I don't feel like a victim. Uh, you know, the relationship between Talia and Ivanova. Mm-hmm. You know, the, mm-hmm. that's there. Again, my critical faculties fail me completely on this episode. <laughs> uh, but this is a splendid episode to watch right after you know right after you've finished a re a, a rewatch of this series right after you've put it to bed with sleeping in light mm-hmm. go back and watch midnight on the firing line and it really does hold up it's not just uh, an old episode from when they were still finding their feet it is you know there's all there's all kinds of mirroring going on and you appreciate it all the more when you think of some of the things that JMS lays out for us right in this first episode that we know are going to happen eventually, and but how in the world we get there is such a complete and utter surprise. We have Londo describing how the Centauri, you know, know in dreams what you know how they're going mm-hmm. to die, and he's going to die with him and Jakar at each other's throats. And you know, right now for the new viewer, they're looking at him going like, "Well, yeah, duh, I can see that." <laughs> but yeah. when we think of what they go through and how it turns out at the end that it is, you know, Jakar giving Londo the mercy killing he so desperately needs to um to save Centauri Prime. No one watching that first episode would ever guess 
how that turns out, even though we're told flat out, this is the final scene. You know, how we get there is just, it's amazing. I think it's it's a perfect example of how, you know, prophecy really tends to work in the best stories that, that you know the things that the prophet says do happen but it never comes about it's always twisted in a different way and i think that you know that particular element is legitimate specific prophecy but you've got so much more going on in this story that is is very much sort of mirrored like like you said mirrored down the road and i think that's my favorite thing about this is just watching it and reveling in the fact that it's so different from what comes later but that that the pathway it, it may be twisty but it absolutely makes sense all the way along i mean right now we've got events that are the complete opposite of what happens later uh, you know the centauri being the uh, <laughs> the poor wounded souls and the narn being the aggressors and of course we know that that flips later like shannon said and i it just it that is the kind of of continuity and plot structuring that just really, really gets me going. So I just, I, yeah. I love it. I love it so much. And I was just, I was thinking about the, the scene with, uh, with Kosh when uh, Sinclair goes to talk to him and, you know, the, the Kosh's, you know, cryptic rye observation, you know, they, they are a, you know, they are a dying race. We should just let them die. And, you know, Sinclair is like, who, you know, the Narn or the Centauri and Kosh is like, yes. yes. Um, and what we're going to learn later about the Vorlons is they are that cold and unfeeling, really. You know, mm-hmm. they, 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 they get drawn into this picture of being the the caretakers that they're, they're, they're the grandfather race who's going to, you know, like protect all the smaller races and, and sort them out. And then, you know, once the shadow war comes upon them, we realize, no, they're just as big of jerks as, as the other guys, you know, that, that, that cynic, that cynical coldness is there at the beginning. It is. Um, and also, this is the first time, uh, I'll, I'll mention this, that this is the first time that we really get to witness the crypticness of Kosh. Mm-hmm. He's, just a, he's just a sculpture in The Gathering, really. He just falls over. There is no characterization. All, the, all that we get is, all that we get at the end of The Gathering is Delenn sort of making a point of bowing reverently before uh, Kosh. Uh, but now we get the we get the sense that the 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 Vorlons are not just alien and powerful; um, they are also alien in thought process and cryptic as heck. And uh, you know, and you know, we'll get we'll get, obviously we'll get more of that uh, to come. But this is the first time that we get to see who Kosh is. Yes, it's very mm-hmm. exciting. All right. Anything else you guys want to talk about as far as uh, the entire run of the show goes before we sign off and say goodbye to everybody? I, let's. I'd like to talk about Sinclair a little bit uh, because oh, okay. mm-hmm. this performance, uh, this performance in this episode, uh, again after having done most of most of a previous rewatch very recently, you get far enough into the series and you almost forget that Sinclair was there. I stand by my statement in the spoiler-free section about him being very believable as a military figure and all that stuff. I would say probably more so than Sheridan, who mm-hmm. uh, occupies more of a, you know, JMS called him sort of a Heinlein hero, but very much a, he strikes, he carries himself as more of a space opera military person than a real military person. Yes. Um, Sinclair I love the performance in this episode so darn much. It makes me wonder what 
Michael O'Hare and Sinclair could have done over the course of the series. There are a couple of things going on. Um, as, as JMS revealed after O'Hare's death, Michael O'Hare had uh, mental health issues uh, that were putting him under a terrible strain trying to complete this season. And uh, so that, that was one reason why the character had to be written out. The other issue being as, and I think this would be the, the portion of a truth that JMS shared at the time um, that helped cover up the fact that O'Hare had problems was that by the end of season one, Sinclair's the problem solver. He's the, he's sort of already developed as a philosopher. He, there aren't that many, many, there aren't that many interesting places for him to go. But I, watching this episode, I really missed Sinclair. I wanted to see more of him than what we got. Um, I, I, I just wonder if the two of you think that he could, if, if this Sinclair as portrayed in this episode could have actually carried series, could have, could have uh, held his own against Jakar and Londo and all these other really strong characters. I think, and I don't know, I'm, I'm guessing what JMS might have had planned all along. I think we would have had to have moved Sinclair out of the Babylon 5 commander context anyway. Um, what the, the move was off screen. He was, you know, taking him in bar to, to be the diplomat there to lay, lay in the idea of, of him being Valen. But, um, I still think we might have seen him get promoted to a diplomat, um, and have someone else brought in to be commander of the station. I can still see if, if this, if the track is still that earth goes through this ultra conservative, um, paranoid phase in its change of leadership, then I can still see that move being made. You know, we're not going to demote Sinclair. You know, we're going to move him somewhere else um, while we get our more um, more buckaroo military-style guy in at Babylon 5 to sort of take charge there. I, you know, and, and from there, with that extra level of um, authority, I think he still would have played very well against the other characters. But I, I don't know that keeping him... As commander of Babylon Five, through the Shadow War, I, I'm not sure I see that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm just going to say flat out, no, I don't think he would have, <laughs> um, because, like I said, I've just I, and as I said, I, I like the way the character is written here, and I think that if if that character had been continued to be written this way, that would have been great script wise. But I just. I, as a viewer, had trouble getting past the performance of Michael O'Hare, and I do. I, I think he's he's good in some ways, but just he's a little bit. I, I realize that the the acting style at the time was definitely a lot more stagey than we get in in most television dramas these days. But I think of the bunch, he was he was the most stiff and stagey of them all. He was a little bit boomy and bombastic in, in some of his line deliveries and, and the the way that he used his his voice. And that just grated on my nerves enough that I don't know that I would have been able to hang in past one season of him. He's just not my favorite. I don't know. I well, think you're the... just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I see some of the some of them. You, you sort of need a straight man for a lot of these other characters. I mean, you've got Garibaldi the with, with his his wisecracking cynicism. You've got, you know, Londo and Jakar and uh, Delenn, even all of these others. You kind of need a, a center point for them to bounce against. 
Um, because at least at this point, even though the seeds have begun to interlock around all these different characters, you know, the viewers, we don't have those connections yet. We've just got the very beginnings of them. On behalf of all the stiff, sort of preoccupied, <laughs> tall people with scars in the middle of their foreheads, <laughs> I much? demand respect for... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, you know, I, I have an, I have an, an irrational um, attachment to the Sinclair character. So, uh, and, and it's not just because we have similar forehead scars, but... Um, <laughs> There, there is something very earnest about the Sinclair character and very serious. And I think ultimately that's why you need to go in a different direction and why you get a more dynamic character like John Sheridan um, and a more dynamic actor like Bruce Boxleitner. Uh, again, who, who knows if uh, O'Hare hadn't been struggling, um, you know, who knows what would have happened. But um, – I, I still, I, I still have a lot of affection for the character, and I was, yeah, even, even as, I was, I was one of those guys on RecArts SFTV Babylon Five who kept um, asking JMS uselessly, "Are we? Is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Is he going to be back for more than just a War Without End two parter?" Uh, I, I, I really like the character. Is he going to come back? And no, and for for a whole lot of reasons, but. Um, you know, I, I wonder, was, it, would, it yeah. would be interesting for me if I could just go back in time and do it differently and watch from the beginning or closer to the beginning rather than catching it in the middle because I started mm-hmm. with John Sheridan. So that may very much color my perceptions. And it may just be because I was comparing him to what I knew came later that I had such trouble with it. So I, I, will, can, I will admit my bias there. I yeah. can definitely see that. Yeah. One last point, uh, and uh, we're going to once more fulfill our contractual obligation to mention Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> but I love, I love um, the fact that we get this transition in characters uh, from uh, Sinclair to Sheridan and all this other stuff. You know, and Doctor Who is, you know, we've we've had the same character, but he's been played by different actors uh, uh, for its fifty years. And companions uh, come and go. So, and, and companions come and go. Contrast that. I mean, Babylon Five. We have uh, these characters, uh, uh, the, the, these characters that uh, rotate in and out um, over its five year term, and you compare that to Star Trek and the, the, all of the the Star, the Star Trek franchise shows, which kept more or less the same cast all the way through. Um, even Dr. Pulaski was only a one season off uh, in Next Generation, and then the original character comes back. I wonder how many shows could last longer if they allowed the characters to, um, you know, this this had a five-year plan, but um, I, I, I wonder how many other science fiction franchise shows, how healthy they'd be if they could take a page from Babylon 5 or Doctor Who and keep telling the story with different characters. I don't know. I think that's tricky. I mean, look at something like X-Files. It really, like, honestly, I thought that the last couple seasons were just fine with the new characters, but if you really have such a cult of personality kind of around the the, the main characters, and maybe that's different because it had two strong leads and then those were replaced. But I think I think you have to both do it well and be extremely lucky to be able to make that work because I think most cases, if you'll look throughout history, when you change uh, characters who are sort of the main characters, it, 
things tend to crash and burn. But perhaps, like I said, if it's if it's a more ensemble cast like this, maybe that maybe that's a little bit easier ground to make that grow in. Yeah, I'm 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 racking my brains trying to think of shows that have been able to successfully transition casts like that. And I'm I'm coming up blank. I'm thinking of things like, you know, the Big Bang Theory still has their original four members, and they've just added more people and, and added more without losing anybody. Um, the only parallel I can think of is, well, actual soap operas that have to, you know, adapt and recast and uh, bring new characters in as old characters age out, because that story is never-ending. Uh, the fact that JMS was able to condense that feeling into a a plot that, you know, has the beginning, the middle, and the end to take into account. I think um, he was uh, quoted as describing how he had a trap door for every actor just in case because he knew that, you know, five years was a tough commitment. Things happen. So, you know, he had something uh, when uh, Talia Winters, when Andrea Thompson left, you know, he had a way, a dramatic way for the character to be written out, you know, with the with the possibility of bringing her back. We never saw her again, but it might have been interesting mm-hmm. to see the 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 new personality return in some way. Um, the Marcus's character, when, when that actor was written out, that was incredibly powerful, you know, made for the shippers storyline. <laughs> and, you know, that he was able to take the nature of television work and make it work for him. And make yeah. it work for the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, which is something that he would not have done if he'd known what was coming with Claudia Christian. But we'll get to that another yeah. time. Yeah, right. That's true. Uh, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, I'd forgotten that's, it was her as much as him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good place for us to, to wrap things up here, unless you guys have last thoughts. Keep watching. I have no last thoughts. What's that? <laughs> Keep watching. Keep yes. watching stick with us all right well thank you guys again uh, for for sticking with us and we hope you will continue on this journey along with us Uh, so we will be talking to you in a couple weeks when we chat about soul hunter soul hunter